0: Anybody can do this. I didn't do anything super expensive or anything super spectacular. I'm I, I hope by sharing my journey, others will know, have the confidence to continue on their journey because when you have the the opportunity and the success of taking this incredibly majestic animal then, you know, you can go all the way back through time if you do that with a bow that, you know, you really have earned the right to be an outdoorsman.
1: Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose. To make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast. This is episode 199, and our guest is one of you, a listener that has a hunting story to share. And it's not only a story that's uh, fun to listen to, but there's so, so much in there in terms of lessons that he has learned, and really a good way to look at a podcast such as this and to go back through episodes and how to apply the knowledge that you can get. So we've covered elk hunting in so many different ways with so many different experienced guests, but how do you, as the guy listening to this podcast, take all that information and put it into practice? That's what we discussed today with this listener, Jeremy, and him sharing his story. Before we dive into that interview with Jeremy, just wanted to give you guys a quick reminder about this month's giveaway here in October of 2019. You can win coffee from Dark Timber Coffee Company and some backcountry food options from Off Grid Food Company. Both of these are products and companies that make phenomenal products first and foremost, but secondarily are run by great guys trying to support this industry. And uh, yeah, we just generally love what they're doing, what they're up to, what they're making. We use it ourselves and uh, happy to let you guys know about them. Be sure to go over to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. Take a couple seconds just to enter that giveaway. It's really simple. If you have anything else for us, you need to reach us, contact us, have questions, you can also email us directly to podcast at Exomongear.com. All right, let's dive into this episode with Jeremy discussing his elk hunt from this fall. Well, Jeremy, uh, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for asking me.
1: Steve, how are you doing today, man?
0: I'm great. Excited to to talk with Jeremy here and get his story and and how his hunting season's gone.
1: Yeah, we've done this a few times. So Jeremy's a listener of the podcast and kind of reached out to us and had a a cool experience um this fall in the Elkwoods that was not only a fun story to hear, but there's so many valuable lessons um, in your story, Jeremy, that I think would help the people listening today or that they could relate to and connect with. But before we dive into that hunt, Jeremy, just go ahead and give us some context and introduction, background on yourself, a little bit personally that you'd like to share.
0: Sure. So um, my background is I'm a physician executive and I've, you know, worked in pretty high profile settings. But I think the more relevant to me background is I'm a fourth generation Montana boy, but was raised by a single mom. So I never really had the opportunity to fulfill my, my interests in being able to fly fish and hunt. And I had a friend from college who uh, sort of you know, mentored me in that. And, uh, and I was active duty. And so when I would come back in the summers, we'd go fly fishing. For example, we did a 56 mile inflatable kayak trip through the Bob Marshall wilderness. Um, and, you know, I had 250, uh, Western slope cutthroat on dry flies. So that kind of thing, but he always talked about bow hunting. And so five years ago, I, um, well, about six years ago, I got a bow and I shot for a year. And then five years ago, I started, uh, hunting and then, um, and elk included, and uh, was sort of, had struck out, although had had a lot of encounters until this year, and that's sort of what led me to write you what was going on in my life.
1: Yeah, that's cool. So, five years or so, five elk seasons, this, we'll get to it, obviously, but this was your uh, first bull with a bow, correct, this year?
0: First elk, period.
1: First elk, period, yeah. So, in those, I mean, there's, we could probably spend an hour just talking about this question, but... Just some of the highlights or standouts from those first few years as you're not only learning bow hunting in general, but then learning elk hunting specifically. Like, Talk to us about those first few years, maybe some of the lessons you learned, some of the battles that you went through and how you kind of pushed through and just kept at it. Sure.
0: So I I think one thing that a couple things that my friends would say make me (laughs) possibly unique and maybe high maintenance is um, when when I go into something, I don't go like 50 percent. Right. So so what I did is I decided that I wanted to get an elk and I wanted to do it with a bow. I didn't want to do it with a rifle. So. Um, You know, first, like I said, as I practiced shooting till I thought I could shoot well, and then, you know, I'd taken some deer and stuff, but what I did is I started uh, figuring out where we would hunt, and I had a couple friends, the one from high school and then one other friend in Butte, Montana, and I lived in Montana at the time, and I just began scouting, so I think that was really important for me because I overcame some of the things that you talked about. For example, before I started elk hunting, I'd really never left the trail. I mean, a lot of people, I think spend their life on trails and you know when I started leaving the trails and and forcing myself to go backpacking by myself camp by myself you know listen to wolves howling in the background by myself um you know I really um Uh, sort of found myself. So I think that was a little different than the other thing is, is I just read like a dog and, and that's how I found your, uh, your podcast. And, you know, I started reading uh, older books and different books about elk hunting and and really there was probably too much information. And, um, and so we started scouting specific areas and I, I'd never had the issue of getting into elk. I had the issue of getting into elk at the right time. So we really hunted elk like I fished steelhead, so early in the morning and late in the evening. And then we had no idea what to do during the day. We were worried about pushing elks out of their bed, you know, and then not being able to find them again. Um, So we never hunted elk really during the day, even though uh, we got lucky and would take an elk every now and then during the day. My buddies would. Um, and then I obviously uh, had a couple opportunities and totally blew it. I had a elk that we blew out a bull, and um, I actually bugled him as soon as we blew out, and we dropped down. We were in deadfall. He went around, circled us. I called him into 19 yards, and I was so freaking excited when I went to shoot that I remember thinking... I should have looked through the peep. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the arrow hit him in the back of his neck, and it, it didn't even penetrate at all. It just hung there. And he sort of looked at me, and then he just walked away, and it was sort of flopping in him as he walked away. And there was no blood trail. There was no injury. There was nothing except humiliation. and. Oh, wow. uh and so that was one, and then I had another one at 30 yards that came in so fast, running so hard to a cow call, and I'd set up poorly, and I took a shot, and my arrow hit a little branch and diverted and hit him, in. it just hit right at his front hoof, um, so I had that one, I had a... Uh, Spike, I called in to about 10 feet accidentally, so I was with a herb bull calling in satellites. Spike came in all the way and then walked right up to me and just stared at me for 10 minutes and then turned and walked away and then suddenly spun and came right back and stared at me, and you can't shoot spikes in my area. Uh-huh. So I had a lot of encounters. I just, yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I, I it was, I think, just Steven was... Yeah, maybe it was Steve sent. I can't remember. It was one of the elk weeks where they said, you know, um, there elk there are elk hunters and there are elk killers or something like that. And you yeah. know, I spent I I love the cycle of life, so I've been very active as an elk hunter. But I decided this year, you know, I really prepared this year. I felt my elk calls were better and stuff, and I just really felt like I was going to seal the deal to get the monkey off my back.
1: Yeah, so. yeah, you awesome. you definitely prepped this year, and we'll talk about that, but. in in those first few years with those ups and downs with those encounters that didn't go your way do you feel like you're just the type of person that just bounces back from that stuff well of like you know you're all the more determined to make it happen after being close or did you kind of struggle with you know getting down or kind of dejected that you kind of blew the opportunity if you will
0: Oh man, I was down. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I felt like I sucked. I mean, I even said that. You know, in fact, it's so funny because my friend from uh, Butte he was a running back in college and uh, his wife was a basketball player in college. And I remember we came back and we didn't get an elk and we called her on the, on the phone, on the, on the Bluetooth uh, in his truck. And she goes, man, you guys suck. So so I saw her this last weekend and she goes, okay, you don't suck anymore, Blanche. So, (laughs) so
1: that's too funny.
0: So, yeah. So, I mean, I really took it hard. Um, just because, you know, I'd work so hard. I mean, and, and what I did is I just kept, you know, improving and growing and, and tried to step back and say, you know, to cherish these moments. Cause my other friend from college is really good about cherish, cherishing the moments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things when I, as a leader, I always focus on how can we create more moments in our life? Cause so mu- much of the time we spend living in the spaces in between. Um, and I'm a real journey driven person, not a destination. Cause destinations really are fool's gold right i mean you say you reach a degree what does that mean right Mm -hmm. i mean it you're done with it now what you know or let's say you get your elk if it was all about just killing the elk okay you're done then what but for me it's about that cycle life of being honestly a natural predator and um you know in the honor of being able to take such a you know a grand animal
1: yeah that's awesome well said for sure so heading into this year, uh, just to read a line directly from your email, because I thought, man, this guy put in the work. So to read what you wrote and part of your story, um, you said, my prep had been good. I've taken Elk University, have the Elk Nets app and playbook. I've practiced and tuned my calls. I've run marathons, so my conditioning was good. I've run in the mountains with my pack prior to the hunt. I shoot 3D and targets two to three times a week. I felt like I was ready. So just in all that, I mean, you were for sure putting in the work um, to both understand the elk, to be able to call elk, practice your calls, be physically ready from a shooting perspective to be ready. So I just think, you know, it's seeing all that together. I read that, and I'm like, man, that is so much work. But honestly, if you want to be successful at archery elk hunting, that's what it takes. So going into this year, did you feel pretty confident having put all that work into place?
0: Yeah, I think I did. And I think that there was a difference this year. So in the past years, like I've done, one year I did over 200 miles on foot and uh, 35,000 feet worth of elevation change, including scouting and hunting. Um, And another year I did 175 miles and about the same elevation change. So, I mean, I've always worked hard, but sometimes you can work hard and it isn't the right work. Like I really believe now after listening to, To Mike Prevost, when um, I went back and listened to the rucking podcast, that that's really what I should be doing instead of the marathon training. Because when I carried out my elk this year, I mean, I didn't feel like my training was the right training. And it makes sense when you listen to his podcast and read his art or to your guys' podcast and read his articles. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to do the wrong work. And there's a lot of, uh, one of the things I love about a hunt back country podcast is I think. Um, it, it really works as a sieve to pick out the right uh, different people had need different kinds of work you give the different perspectives of types of work but you get to sort of hone based on what you hear and who's like you and, st- and what resonates to figure your right work so what was different this year was recognizing the value of a setup and the elk nuts uh, you know um, ability to talk to the elk rather than you know, making sort of random noises you hope they respond to. So I've had success calling in, you know, I've called a bull in from 500 yards before, but only to 73. And I was in the middle of, I was lying in a depression in the meadow. It was the dumbest setup in the world. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I mean, there were three bull elk looking at me, but you know, they're like, where in the hell is this coming from? You know, excuse my language, but where in the heck is this coming from? And, uh, so, so I've done that. I've, the bull I called in that I that deflected my arrow I mean I had called him in and he came in silent I stood up and saw him so I faded back and then I dropped down and went a mile over and then called him in where I thought was a good setup it was just a big rock with nothing around it it was a dumb setup and um and so when he came in i you know he came in i'm right-handed and instead of coming where i could take a shot from the right side of the rock i had to take a shot from the left side of the rock so if you can sort of visualize that i either had to expose myself a lot or or contortion you know and with a compound bow you know if i was using my trad you know it might be different but with a compound bow that kind of contortion really screws up your routine and so i think i think the difference this year was making it one strategy instead of a series of cooperative strategies. If that mm. makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make sense. If you distill that down I mean, you just mentioned a lot of good information, but if you did kind of distill down, you're explaining it to someone just a couple of minutes, what is that main strategy for this year that you had going into it?
0: Well, so what I did is to distill that down, as I'd figure is I would say, what did you want that moment where you shot the elk? to look like so if you could go to that moment I wanted in my mind this year I wanted no farther than a 40 yard shot I wanted uh, a difficult for the elk to approach me from behind I wanted management of the wind so I had the best opportunity and I wanted a setup that allowed me to call in solo Uh, A satellite bull elk. So I knew that was exactly what I wanted. And then my contingencies—I had a couple contingency plans if that didn't work. And I recognized I'd take whatever elk came in because my wife loves elk meat, and I was told I needed to bring some home. (laughs) So, so, so that you know, when you put those together, then I also wanted to be able to carry the elk out. So I made a couple choices of different land than I had hunted before um, because of that. And I wanted to be in shape to be able to do that well. And then I wanted my gear to support me in that, but I didn't want excess gear. So what I did is I went to that moment. What would it look like if I had the ideal setup? And there's actually a video on the Elk Nuts app that shows him doing like a breeding call. And he's sort of set up in these logs and where he can, he can scrape and he can rattle and that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and I actually had two contingencies I didn't use. I had actually purchased a Loman's uh, rattle box for deer that I thought could augment um, the two young b- bulls fighting because i really felt like I was going to f- to, in the past, I'd tried to replicate a herd bull, which again was sort of not a smart move. And this year, I was really trying to replicate a raghorn because I felt then I would get a decent satellite coming in. And actually, the day before I took this bull, I called in a, a five by five, a really nice five by five, probably three years old or four years old, um, to twenty two yards. Uh, and but just couldn't get a shot on him. But uh, for different reasons, basically he was staring right at me. But um, so I felt like, but I had the same setup, and I felt like my setups were what determined where I was at. And also, I, in my mind, I looked at what time of day was this. So I chose to avoid the, you know, I, I would have taken a shot early morning, but I really set myself up for when the thermals had changed. So 930 is about what I thought I would be 10 o'clock setting up my, my, my shot. And uh, so when I did that, then I distilled down. what do I need to do to prepare for that? So I needed to sort of practice finding setups. So when I, I went pre-rut to hunt the area that I was hunting, but I was really pre-scouting. And so I found areas I thought, well, this would work as a setup if, if this came into fruition. And then um, the other thing I did is I said, okay, if I had herd bulls and even though I'm hunting satellites, the herd bowl will sort of be the locator of where the satellites will circle around, so they become the center of the. Uh, they become the the um, sun. And the satellites become the planets, you know, circling around it. So I looked at, okay, if this is the bull, where will he go with his harem? And he would cross a so I was coming down one side of a gorge and I knew that he would cross a creek and go back up the other. And then I thought, well, okay, let's make absolutely sure that there are bulls in that area. So I made the decision to come in at night rather than during the day. And then I bugled my way up the mountain. So I knew where three herd bulls were. And um and so with those things combined, I knew what setup I was going to try to set up on. I knew how I was going to get the elk out because I could go down or up depending on the the how close I was to which part of the area I was hunting. And then I knew that I was going to do a breeding call with a young bull. So I had in my mind plan A, plan B, plan C. And uh, because of that, because I had seen how I was pre-visualized like an athlete, um, pre-visualizing taking that elk, I felt pretty confident about if I could get myself in that setting, I had a good shot.
1: Hmm.
0: Does that make sense?
1: It does. Yeah, Yeah. it's really interesting. There's so many dynamics and variables in elk hunting and, you know, it's hard to script it. But I think there's so much value in your approach and your mindset of trying to create that perfect scenario and then work backwards from there to make that happen. Because that that affects things in large ways and it affects things in very small ways in terms of where you stand, what you do, what type of country you're looking for. Um, I think getting really specific like that can be incredibly helpful as you're making decisions. You know, there's a lot of times of, you know, the and paralysis of analysis what should i do where should i go whatever but with your philosophy on knowing what you want to create and then just working to create that you're making decisions and well-informed decisions to get to that point so i really like it
0: well i agree with that and i think by doing the bugles at night i knew where the bowls were so you know i think a challenge for a lot of guys and and for me this changes as soon as it snows because the areas i scout are pre-snow so once it snows you know, of any a large amount in Montana, then where they go changes. So you sort of have to have, you know, if, if you can hunt pre-snow for me, I know a lot of guys say I want it to snow because I can track them. I don't want it to snow yet because I know where they are. So what by knowing where that there were elk in those areas, now I knew I had a great chance of running into them. If you're, if you're, <laughs> if you're um, trying to guess where they are, then it becomes a crapshoot but if you know where they are if you manage the wind and if you're patient you got a great chance to get in and and so i my plan a was that setup my plan b because i'd already put myself into the what i would call the you know sort of the the satellite roaming area since I knew I was already in within their area but hadn't penetrated deep enough for my wind for the wind to screw me up. If I didn't get somebody coming in, my plan was then to go to B and C. And plan B was to try to sneak in on their bedding. So I tried to decide where are they going to bed and I had a pretty good idea. And then if if I when I got close, if it really looked like I couldn't see the bowl, I was going to run into I was just going to try it. I was going to run into the cows, blow them out. Then, come back a little bit, and then uh, do a young bowl call to see if I could get the herd bowl to come in, so I felt like I had these really exciting fun opportunities that made it a journey rather than so much pressure on the kill.
1: yeah, I like it, I like it a lot. You mentioned uh, Paul Medell and Elknut and his resources, and I know that you 've um, incorporated those in terms of like calling strategies. I'm curious. I love Paul. I love listening to Paul. I think one of the things that can be difficult is kind of distilling all of his information because he gets going so fast and all that. What are some of like the concrete takeaways from your perspective as someone who's listened to Paul and looked at his stuff Um, like very, you know, directly? What approaches have you taken and what understanding do you have because of his information?
0: Yeah, that is so true, Mark. Cause last year I was totally overwhelmed by it. I mean, yeah, it exactly. really, it was, it was information paralysis, but I decided this year, okay, when I visualize that setup, what, what communication would I be sending? So I really only worked. And since I knew I was hunting solo, I, I really only worked on the slow play and on the breeding sequence. And so I only worried about those two, and I didn't worry about getting it totally right. I mean, there's a little bit of improv going on there, right? So, with, so when we get into my hunt, I mean, I had four cow calls, but not all of them were effective. So I had to adjust to which cow calls I used in that setting to get that, that bull in. And, um, so when I was reviewing Paul's stuff, I decided the playbook was too much. So I looked at it a little bit, but last year I'd, I'd had it in my pack. I did this year too, but last year I had my pack and when I take a break, I would go through it and I, I close it and try to memorize, you know, and I think I was really, it was like, um. It was like spending too much on the play and not enough on being present in the moment. So I think it really almost hampered me a little bit. So that resonates with me. This year, what I did is I really looked and said, okay, I'm only going to work on these two. And what I really tried to do was learn a couple calls that I think were key. One of those was the contact buzz. So, really, the contact buzz was the key call for me in my experience this year. And then the second was, Um, differentiating the three the three bugles a advertising bugle a challenge bugle and uh, um, a lip ball and so I never used the lip ball but because I knew what that was when I heard it it really helped me understand that that was a bull a herd bull and so it was helpful in that regards for me and my within my strategy but just by the contact buzz and then some basic cow calls, I really distilled what he had said down into very simple parts. Contact buzz, cow call, advertising bugle, and I and I would and I focused on it being a young bull rather than an old bull, which was new for me. And then um, the things that, that that I added that were not calls were really the raking. I had sort of done it before, but I didn't know what to do, but I did it a lot more aggressively. And then I think Corey saying, you know, that note he has in Elk Elk University 101, somebody wrote him a note and put it on his windshield that said, you call way too much. And I thought, I thought, well, he's pretty good. So, you know, screw whoever is, uh, you know, who says that to me. And actually there were a couple old guys I ran into that, uh, continually were hunting around me that didn't get a bull. Um, you know, and probably, and I know weren't calling as much, but, um, and one thing that really brought home calling that much was I was coming out when I was pre-rut, And I thought they were actually still there, these older guys, and I thought that they were uh, practicing bugling because I heard this, the worst bugles I had ever heard in my life coming down an old, I knew it was coming down an old logging road that I knew about just by the sound moving along. And it was every 10 minutes. And I thought, oh my God, you guys, you're going to scare everything out of here. And I got up there and they weren't there. It was one of the young uh, bulls that was in the area practicing his bugling. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it was, that really brought it home to me that, you know, you're not going to screw it up by being too noisy. You're going to screw it up by the wrong call at the wrong time or wind.
1: I like that. When you, you, I think you mentioned in there something about, you know, understanding what call is working and that can vary by different situations. How do you look at that in terms of kind of gauging, oh, they are responding to this. Let me keep that up versus just kind of blindly blowing things out there or feeling like you have to have this certain strategy you stick to and not adapting to the elk, if you will, how does that come into play in terms of encounters that you've had with calling?
0: (sighs) Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm 55 and I sort of look at it as, you know, how was my interaction with people when I was younger in college? So guys and girls. So if, you know, in, in Butte, Montana, if you walk into a bar and you don't make eye contact with them, they're rude, but everywhere else, pretty much you walk into a bar and you make eye contact and it's a challenge. Or, you know, when you, you know, how many times have people heard, you know, of silly lines that, that guys or gals use with each other, you know, are you tired, yeah. uh, no why should i be yeah you've been running through my mind all night you know that that kind of you know those kind of things and so i think as you as you mature you learn what are sort of stupid lines or stupid introductions or not not very uh conversationally wise questions and then you know when you sort of adapt as a, most of us adapt as an adult as we grow along and i feel like that's in the in you know Last year, well, probably before last year, you know, I didn't really look for a response from the elk. I just was doing a sound that I was trying to learn. And this year it became a conversation. So when I, you know, did a a cow call and got nothing back versus another cow call and got some kind of response back, then, you know, that was a call 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 cow call i began to work towards so i think it's really um being confident enough that you don't have to worry about does my call is my call a good call or a bad call but more um and that was i was trying to bring home with that young bull but more about do the elk respond to my call
1: we've talked a pretty high level at things that you found helpful but go ahead and actually take us um kind of lead us up into the encounter that you had with this bull that you're ultimately able to put your tag on. Like, how did that play down? What was the approach like? What was that specific hauling scenario relay that story for us?
0: Sure. Uh, one thing I did want to reference real quick, if it's okay, Mark, is that, you know, there were a lot of things, uh, you know, and I know you're not asking me to do this, but I think it's important for somebody listening. There were a lot of things in the podcast. I've listened to, I have listened to all of them, but I think I've listened to 123 of them. I went back and looked at my previously played. And So just to sort of set the stage for that, you know, my level of nutrition was better. So I dropped from 220 to 200 pounds, you know, in prep uh, for this using nutrition rather than um, because I always was working out. But the nutrition was a big player in that. I, um, you know, there was a Navy SEAL who talked about what firearm to carry. And I hunt grizz country some. So I switched from a 45 to a Glock 10 millimeter. Um, you know, there was, uh, there are a lot of different things on the market you can buy. I only use one diaphragm, you know, and it, that there, I don't use a call, a cow versus a bull. I just use one diaphragm. And then I have a couple of read calls that I, three read calls I carry. And, and, you know, I remember, uh, One of the, I can't remember who it was, but one of your people on elk week was talking about how they fell asleep after doing a call. And then the bull elk was sniffing their face basically, you know, and he talked about how he carried a number of calls. So I actually bought an extra one after that. Um, you know, I, um, uh, made sure my boots were the right boots it's so funny because i started rucking this last week with a pair of boots i hadn't worn much and i got a huge blister on my foot now and i went through all elk season without any problems <laughs> so you know you, you have to relearn lessons um you know the uh the setups as i discussed the way i i adjusted my sights uh, so about a year and a half ago you guys had a uh conversation with gold and black and you know i went to a three pins uh that are fixed up to 40 yards and then adjustable out to 100 and you know the day, the week before i went elk hunting i actually shot an 88 yard 3d shot now i'd never take a shot over 55 yards for me because i just don't feel comfortable with that but i knew that i could shoot out to that distance and uh, having that adjustable sight was really helpful when i was shooting 3d um I also uh, made sure my routine was honed, so I know exactly what my routine was, and I know when I went to shoot this bull this year, I I actually thought of that, okay, follow your routine, and so I just wanted, and then the other thing was, is I pre-googled all this area, even though I knew it intimately with boots on the ground, I pre Googled it like I'd never been there to try to figure out, okay, where where are the bedding areas that I haven't found yet? So I knew on the north faces where I thought there were little benches that they would bed, so that if I had to go to plan B or C, that's how I would approach that um, until I found an elk trail going into there. So I think um, it's really important that to recognize that although things came into play, there was a there was a lot in the podcast that helped guide me in my learning so that I was learning the right things because there's way too much to learn because elk hunting is a business as well as, you know, uh, uh, a part of who I am, but there's a business part of it that allows me to get way overloaded with information and gear and all these kind of things. So I just wanted to point that out, but I, is that okay?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I appreciate it. it. Of all that you said, and there's uh, good feedback in there for sure. But uh, one follow-up question I have is, which is that single call that you use? You mentioned you only use that one diaphragm. I'm just curious which one it is for you.
0: Um, yeah, I got Corey's, So, But it's a couple years ago. I bought. I always buy two of them because uh-huh. the, there's all this information. How do you protect your latex and stuff? I, I don't care if I protect my latex. If it's worn out, I'll buy two new ones. I mean, right. they're not very expensive. Yeah. So, So I just buy two so that I have one in case I lose it so that I can practice with it. And I always have two releases. Those are the two pieces of equipment that I have to, a redundancy in. And then, you know, then that's it. And then I just practice, practice, practice with them. And I, my wife is tired of it, but I practice in the in the car. And actually, I have a daughter with learning disabilities. When she sleeps in, I sneak into her room and elk bugle her so, <laughs> to wake her up. So. <laughs> so uh she hates it, but it's pretty fun. But anyway, um, yeah. So did you want me to go into the story?
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Okay. So, um, so September 6th, um, so I had planned on hunting with my friend, but we've had, we both had a couple of circumstances where his brother-in-law is a guide in, on the Missouri breaks and has, um, a, a, an illness and was sicker. And so my friend went over, you know, we made, we always make the decision of family over our hunting and that's a hard decision, but it's the right decision because you can live with that one and you can't always live with the other one. And so I know that, you know, as Steve's life has changed as kids have come into his world, you know, I've sort of heard that those decisions being made. And you can live with the memories of those decisions. It's hard to live with the memory of if somebody died while you were off doing something or things like that. So my friend actually went over and he wasn't able to hunt with me. And he went over and helped out his brother-in-law. So I knew going into this season that I probably was going to be hunting solo, which is okay. I do a lot solo, but I, I prefer to have those memories with my friends. But that's sort of where that went. So I went over September 6th and and I sleep in the back of my truck up on this mountain in this one area that we hunt. And, uh, and normally we hunt above where I park my truck. So between the road and up in the mountain and over the mountain and in a couple um, draws that have some water in them and, uh, that are hard to get into. So the pressure decreases. And so I thought I was going to hunt that area, but I, uh, had gotten out and, um, and I went up and hunted that looked at, scouted that area. And there was absolutely no fresh elk sign there. And I was like, oh crap. And I thought, well, and I came back to my truck and I smelled elk and I thought, hmm they're, they're below me so you know because the thermals were coming up by now it was probably 11 in the morning so I went down and when I looked in that area it was just full of elk signs so I decided that's you know and I hadn't really scouted that area that well so I decided that I would scout it see if I could call in a bull I could get some activity with calls but it was really it was pre-rut and they really weren't that interested and I tried to get a hot cow but they just really weren't buying it so I left went back and I knew I was going to come in a around the rut. And I know Corey says he used to worry about the moon and he doesn't anymore. I still worry about the moon because I know if the, my plans don't work this year, at least I can get them moving when there's no moon early in the morning and early in the evening. I mean, we've had success getting into them before. So I, so we set up the, the moon cycles. I made my plans to come in on those days. And, um, and then, um, You know, I also had a whitetail area that I was, you know, going to try to pick up a buck in on my way in and stuff and on my way out. So anyway, so I came in and then I made the decision to come in at night, like I said. So when I came in at night, I had marked on my GPS Places that I thought were good had good benches in them to to bet on, and then I bugled below those, and so I had three bulls identified, and one of them was in an area that I didn't think there would be one, so that was pretty gratifying as a fallback. Although it wasn't where I ended up hunting, I was up above it, but there were two what sounded like bull elk uh, herd bulls in my area, and the reason I say they sounded like herd bulls is they had the raspiest, meanest deepest sound and bugles back at 11 at night, you know? And so I was like, Oh yeah. So, so anyway, so I went up and I, I just camp in the back of my truck. It's just a quick pull out. And then, you know, I go up to five miles in, although I didn't have to this time. And, and I dropped down and that first morning, um, I, uh, dropped down when the, uh, soon as the thermals were changed so I sort of went in about 500 yards and just sort of waited a little bit for the thermals to change dropped down set up a, a set a setup bugled back and forth with the herd bull and then started doing a, a breeding sequence and all of a sudden these antlers rose over the side of the of the hill and I was on a bench that gave me 40 yard uh, line of sight and then I had a uh, dense uh, dug fur right behind me with a lot of uh, deadfall in it, so it would be hard to approach me from behind, and there's a guy named um, Mike Lipinski, and I love his book. It's called Solving Elk Hunting Problems, and he always says, you know, you, you don't, one mistake you make is trying to see your bull before you're ready to take your shot, because if you can see the bull, the bull can see you, and um, and so I thought about dropping back into the Doug fir, but but I made the decision to be in front of it, because when I've dropped behind it I get I end up peeking around and I get busted so I I put a Doug fur right behind me to break up my silhouette and then I had a tree in front of me and a big branch so I did some raking well this guy came in so fast I couldn't even draw on him I mean it was like boom he was there it was almost like magic he came in silent and he was a pretty nice five by five and he came to a deadfall log in front of me and then turned uphill and I had a 22 yard shot broadside but I couldn't draw on him And uh, because he just was staring at me the whole time. And they went behind a tree. I drew it and my peep was off and so I collapsed back down adjusted my peep drew again he came around saw me but he winded me at the same time and so he turned and headed back where he'd come from I cow called and stopped him but it wasn't a good shot and I'd made a decision if I didn't have a good shot I wasn't going to take it and so I I let him go so then I tried to move down where I thought he was headed and where the the herd bull was and I lost my rangefinder, which is like (laughs) not a fun moment and um I practice a lot without a rangefinder, but it wasn't where I wanted to be. And it's a camouflage range rangefinder. So I spent all morning, you know, retracking my steps, and I decided I needed to hike out and go buy one. So I went two hours, drove two hours, you know, after an hour and a half hike out, I drove two hours, got a rangefinder, drove back, and I had a lot of time to think about it. And I was coming down the north side of this draw and i knew that the the from my experience that day that the herd bulls had moved their harems across the creek up the the south side or the north face of the draw and so i decided that's probably where they were bedding as well so in the day so what i decided the next day was that i would get up before light and walk a logging road all the way around behind them and then wait for the thermals to change and so that's what I did that that so part what I did that on that night when I got back with the shrine is I walked along the road till I got a certain way and then I till it was dark and then I I bugled and then I knew where the bowls were to start the morning the next morning came back um and one of the things Steve said is he always puts water in his uh in his his uh Uh, jet boil the night before and so I did that and I actually really liked that Steve that was a good call (laughs) so so anyway uh, so I got up early I went ahead and uh, hiked in the dark around there about a two mile hike pretty easy and then I uh, dropped down in about 400 yards and the wind was not right so I just took a nap and lo and behold while I'm taking a nap I heard a crack down below me and I was on the the, plat, the bench. I knew, you know, I was above the bench. I knew that I would set up on. And so I just waited till the wind changed, and then I sort of stealthed my way down onto the bench again. Set up with Doug Furs behind me with deadfall. It was almost the exact same setup. It was on the other side of the draw, but the exact same setup. Had a forty yard. Um, Uh, line of sight before it dropped off and began my calls and lo and behold I started getting a call back but it was a I thought it was going to be a um, probably a spike because the first bugle I got back was like you know his, he was going through adolescence, his voice was changing, you know, and it was, so I thought, well, okay. So then I, I really eased off on the aggressiveness of my bugles and I began to do my cow calls, but there were two cow calls. One was my diaphragm and the other was a, um, cowgirl and by Primos. And so those two were much more effective in getting a response from him. So I began to have those two cow calls and, uh, with the raking and, um, And there's, you know, Paul had said to emphasize the elk bugle, not the cow calls, but he was way more responsive to the cow calls than the elk bugle. So I eased off the elk bugle, did a few chuckles, a little bit of glunking, by the way, heard glunking for the first time for real this year. So that was pretty cool. But um, yeah, so, so anyway, so I worked that and then his antlers, tips of his antlers came over in front of me but the place he they came up was the one place that was a little bit obstructed line of sight so i thought man you know it's now or never so i remember Corey jacobson saying you know one of the things that makes him successful is he's super aggressive so i said screw this so i i went ahead and you know shimmied on down another 20 yards and um and so he came up and as he you can imagine if you're walking a side hill and slowly going up the side hill your body begins to present itself above the edge and that's exactly what happened with this ball and as he came up then I thought okay I'm going to get a shot so I was sitting on my knees and I shoot from my knees to because most times I've had a shot have been from my knees or on my butt not standing up and so I was ready to shoot but there was brush obstruction that. And I thought, now I've practiced shooting through some brush, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to screw this one up this time. So I did a, I did a contact buzz and he was like, holy cow, he was, you know, his whole body tensed up like, Ooh, she must be good looking. <laughs> and, uh, so, so he kept walking a little bit. He looked like he was going to win me. So I moved a little to my left and turned my head to my left. Cause he was to my right. And I did, I did a little chirp and then I did another contact buzz and he's sure enough, he turned around. To walk back. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to stand up. So I stood up and he saw me. But in the past, I would have tried to duck back down, but I was in the shade. I'd moved to where I was in the shade. I knew that there was a good silhouette behind me breaking up my, or a good backdrop behind me breaking up my silhouette. So I just held my position. I just held totally still. And uh, then he sort of looked downhill and I drew. And then he started walking a little bit faster. And then I did a nervous grunt, which was a very useful. That's when Paul talks about that. And sure enough, he stopped. And <laughs> the irony of the whole thing is my rangefinder was back on my pack because when I did the aggressive move, I did it without my pack. So I thought. You know, sometimes you just got to, you got to have confidence. And I thought, okay, look through the peep. That was a good adjustment. <laughs> uh, I, put, I put, I thought he was about 27 to 30 yards. I put my 30 yard pin on him right in the middle. And and then I remember, um, I can't remember who it was that was on your elk week, but they had had actually a scapulous shot. So I moved slightly back from where I normally would shoot on a 3D and then I, I I did a nice gentle release, and boom! I heard the the sound of the drum when it hits him, and uh, and then. Uh, uh, Mike Lipinski again from that book. He says one of the biggest mistakes you can make after you shoot an elk, if you made a good shot, is follow the blood trail, because and to me that made sense in the country I was in because it's right as the leaves were changing and those there's those little red leaves all over the place, and so what I did is I just stopped and I listened and I waited till I heard him fall and his two death coughs, and then I threw a thousand yard GPS point on that line on that line of 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 where I'd heard him drop. So I threw a GPS point where I was, I walked down to where I'd shot him through a GPS point. So now I had three GPS points. And then my plan was to go a hundred yards out because I felt like he had died at eighty. To go a hundred yards out on that line that line of sight or that GPS line whatever you would call that. And then I was going to do, you know, semi circles at 60 yards, 70 yards, 80 yards within probably, you know, 40 or 50 yard moving back and forth until I found him. And I found him on my second rotation through at about 85 yards. And, um, you know, there he was, he was, dead and then I use my spot I always carry a spot I have the third generation so I I don't want anybody really texting me I know you guys talk about the value of that maybe in Alaska it's great but I really don't want to talk to anybody so (laughs) I just want them to come when I want them to so so I I texted my friend and say you know I have on there get your butt up here I dropped an elk and uh, and so you know sure enough and then I went higher where I could text him on my phone and you know and then texted back and forth you know bull down bull down because that just feels good to text that, and uh and sure enough, he uh came in. And actually, the the other irony is, I only had a quarter of a mile hike out because he was able to get his uh, four wheeler in a road, ab- uh, you know, that was above us, an old logging road. And this guy ended up dying pretty close, so it was you know it was steep going up, but 110 pound kind of thing. But we did it in two trips and ran into only one bear, so that was good and. Uh, yeah
1: so yeah. that was it that's cool man there's there's so much in there that's uh not only exciting to hear as you we kind of like sit and listen to that and put ourselves there and relive it but good just good information in there too like as you said just being aggressive getting in the right position um yeah so much that you did right and it clearly paid off how did it how did it feel after the years of the ups and downs and the struggle and putting in the work? Um, I know you've said previously, it's, it's not about the kill. It's about the process. Um, but at the same time, having, uh, you know, gotten your first elk with the bow, how did that ultimately feel for you?
0: You, you know, have you seen the last of the Mohicans, you know, when they drop that stag
1: uh-huh.
0: and they, and oh, yeah. they sit and they say a prayer over that stag, um, I, it almost brings tears to my eyes, <laughs> but I uh, I just felt like I had been the most respectful of adversaries. That was the sense I had that mm-hmm. you know I had really given that bull total respect. I had earned the kill. Um, I had been humane in the kill. I had taken the right shot, not a quarter way, quarter towards. Not that they're bad, but I'm just saying for me, I wanted a broadside, under 40-yard shot. It was just a goal. And I felt like I had done uh, everything that I needed to do to earn the right to take a bowl. And so I felt a sense of Uh, not relief. I thought I'd feel relief because of my, that 19 yard shot that I totally screwed up. I felt so bad after that for years. Um, Mm -hmm. and I really felt like I had earned that. And rather than being a killer, I don't think that would describe me. I would really say I was a, I was an appropriate predator. And so I, I felt, I didn't really feel relief. I felt, um, like I had earned it i guess and that you know and that it and, the, and then i felt like it was pretty neat that i did it solo because you know my friends will tell a story of me carrying so what my one friend so the one thing I did do is I did a gutless harvest and um you know and, and I had had a carrot the caribou little meat pack you know so all my bags were ready and all that kind of stuff and you know and and I did it with a you know I had a bench made knife that I gotten for father's day and you know I had my I had a little ceramic sharpener so everything went well with that uh you know and harvesting the uh the bull but my friend <clears throat> is I I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but he shot a, a bull at 67 yards head on. He's a great shot. And I would have never taken a shot, but he's that's who he is. And he's a great guy. And so when we carried it out, he takes it to the local dentist who has a processing area and is a friend of the family to process the the bull. And that dentist does not like the hide off the off the bowl or boned so I carried out a rear quarter in the dark in the rain five miles and it was probably a 125 pound pack and uh, and we're going up this last mud slide to get up to a road and they had had a little bit lighter loads my other two buddies we were all hunting together and they came down to give me a hand and I have a problem of being stubborn and so I, I get this a lot now from them I said I can do it myself Get out of here. And so, 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 so I, uh, uh, you know, I get a lot of, I can do it myself. So, so, so I was pretty happy that I did this myself and, uh, and it felt good to sort of, you know, I had earned the, the right to do it myself and I, you know, was effective doing it myself. And so I, I think I just felt this sense of, of, I, I deserve to be there. I would earned the right to be a bow hunter and I'd done everything respectful. I'd done everything following the rules and, you know, the ethics of a fair hunt, I guess, would be the best way to say it.
1: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. neat. Love it. How is, uh, is your perspective different just thinking of going into future hunts now or is everything the same in terms of... Doing that same work, preparing the same ways, you know relying on the same type of strategies now that you've i guess seen it all come together um, is it just is your mission to stay on that course if you will
0: Oh, I mean life is full of improvements right it's a journey so so the couple places that I really see opportunities to improve is my workout. I think you know if you look at uh, the articles that Mike Prevost uh, talked about in podcast with you um when I went and reviewed those articles, it became very obvious why, you know, carrying out my elk, even though it was a short distance, really sucked and why it had sucked when I had done the five-mile one before. It's partly the nature of the beast, right? But part of it were two things. One is I trained wrong. I mean, cardiovascularly, I was in great shape. I mean, I'd run, as I would stated, mountain marathons. You know, I did a 3,400-foot elevation climb, run marathon on a trail. You know, I was uh, running 25 miles a week doing yoga But what I hadn't done is emphasize strength training at all, and um, and so I really uh, I don't think that the marathon running helped me very much, other than you know maybe prolonging my life which is good but um but but i don't think it helped me in this scenario so i've totally planned on changing to rucking and they're actually rucking competitions so it still meets my need to compete a little bit and that's my plan the second thing is is that i just i i have a great pack i don't want to say the brand because i don't want to be negative in that regard but it doesn't allow me to get the meat higher up on my back and, um, and I really think, you know, listening to a lot of the EXO stuff and looking at, at that, um, as I had shared with Steve before we started the, bro- the broadcast, my hopes are I'm moving from Washington to Mississippi, and my hopes are to drive through Boise and, and try on the xok K3 and, and sort of get an idea about that, because uh, my pack is beautiful, it's expensive, it has all of the additions, the dry bags, the everything, I mean, it can expand to large levels, but it, um, it did not set me up for success, uh, on, on this hike and it's a, it's heavy, heavier. It's probably about 9.8 pounds because I have an external frame. Um, and so I think those are the two things change my workout approach. And uh, and then uh, change my pack. I think I've already honed my shooting. I think by going to the the gold and black or black and gold. I, I'm not a tech guy, but I love those sights. And the, and then I have a Schaefer uh, um, uh, rest. And oh, my gosh, that just made such a difference in confidence level. Um and one of the things I learned too, I don't know if other guys are doing this, but sometimes when you get your bow turned, they don't get your peep right. So one of the things I did when I uh got the new rangefinder is I actually stopped at a bow shop and had my and had my uh um uh, uh string uh adjusted so that my peep was right and we pulled it back a bunch of times in the shop with their automatic pullback so I could make sure my peep was right. So I didn't have to worry about that. So I think taking away things you have to worry in the in the heat of the moment are really key. So uh, those will be the three things I changed. Now, I do will say that my buddy from college likes to jump around. So now he's like, well, I think because you're out of state, we can get an increased shot at getting the Missouri brakes or the Elkhorns, which if you know Montana – you know, yeah. those are two primo. And so he said, so we're going to go a different area. So, so I'm the one that always scouts, but I can't scout from Mississippi. So I'm like, well, then the deal is, is you have to promise that you'll put 40 hours of boots on the ground scouting or I won't do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the middle of negotiations, but, uh, but I think, uh, you know, the, um, the being in it's been said again and again in the podcast if you aren't in the right shape to hunt then you you're just not going to have a successful experience and i think um even if i don't get an elk next year although i feel extremely confident because of the approach i took that we'll, we'll we'll get into the elk and the change to hunting in the beds rather than just trying to get lucky i call it steelhead hunting but um If I if I can be in the rucking shape, then um, then I think with that and then the the uh, mental prep of of confidence, I I think that that will be extremely successful. But I plan on continuing on working on the calls. I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. And then I'm really looking forward to having to scout from a distance because I've Looked at that in, in Elk University 101. I've applied it a little bit, but uh, I think that that's really uh, just another skill I can gain, and I just love to learn. I'm not really a – I'm not a sustainment guy. I'm a startup guy. So I like new learning and and new application and, and that kind of thing. But, I, you know, I don't plan on changing bows. I don't plan on changing GPSs. Uh, I do plan on changing packs and workout program.
1: Yeah. That's interesting, man. There's so much good stuff in there. It's always fun to hear um, somebody's journey, you know, and especially over multiple years like that, which is often what it takes, uh, especially with archery elk. So appreciate the time. Appreciate you sharing what worked for you, what didn't, and, and how you've learned and progressed, and glad it all came together for you this fall.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And I think for the listeners, you know, is uh, I hope what they hear in that story is, you just, you know, not, don't just work hard, but, uh, you know, go back and listen to the, some of the key podcasts like Elk Week and, um, you know, and how to how to shoot and uh, that kind of thing. And then don't overdo it. Like I, I know that a lot of guys tune their bows and shoot through paper. I, I just shoot 3D and I shoot target until I'm sure that I can shoot well, because I don't have to win a tournament. I just have to be able to place an ethical shot on a bull. And so for me, um, I, I hope that they hear that anybody can do this. So, you know, all the things I did, anybody can do. I'm 55. So, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not old, but I'm not super young and I'm going to be hunting when I'm 80. So a lot of what I'm doing is to do a sustainable journey, but anybody can do this. I didn't do anything super expensive or anything, super spectacular. I'm totally hunting but you know public land. Um so I, I just want I, I hope by sharing my journey, others will know, have the confidence to continue on their journey because when you when you have the the opportunity and the success of taking this incredibly majestic animal then, you know, you can go all the way back through time if you do that with a bow that, you know, you really have earned the right to be an outdoorsman. I mean, it's really saying that, you know, you have a relationship of a predator and that's that's an honor to be able to achieve that, I think.
1: Well, that's a great way to cap it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Hopefully you related to this story and can kind of learn some lessons about how you can apply knowledge from podcasts and books and other resources and put those into practice for your hunting so we've got a year ahead of us now so we're back into september a lot of work that we can do so get busy get to work keep tuning in to the show and thank you for the support